The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. So, Mythbusters series is coming to a close. We only have two more, and then we'll be kicking off our new series in the book of Acts, which I have really enjoyed the Mythbusters thing. It's been fun, um, but I will, I'll be honest with you guys, it's not my preferred method. I, I would much rather... I would even say it this way, it is way easier for me to just open up the Bible and say, okay, here's the next text, let's study and we'll just start going through. Like, to me, that's just the easier way, let the word kind of direct us as it goes. So that's normally what we do. We just took a little break this summer and did something a little different. And uh, so we've tackled this series called Mythbusters, where each week we take a different misconception or mistruth or whatever you want to call it. And uh, we've tried to analyze it and go, okay, what is it that people believe? Maybe about God, maybe about the Bible, maybe about the church, maybe about Christians or Christianity, whatever the case may be. Try to understand, so what's this thing that people believe? Why do they believe this? And what does the Word of God say? And why is the Word of God a better thing to believe than maybe the mistruth, the myth, the lie, whatever it happens to be? And we've covered a lot of topics. We were doing the whole rundown, and you guys would all say myth. The list is just too long now. I'm not doing it anymore. But uh, it's been a great time going through all these, and, and today's is a little bit weird because I'm going to talk about church attendance on Labor Day, which is a weird time to talk about church attendance, right? So I'm preaching to the choir today. Amen, church? Can we give yourselves a round of a hand? You came to church on a holiday weekend, right? This is a traditionally lowly attended service, and I was just laughing with uh, Pastor Jeremy yesterday. We were kind of chuckling, like, we didn't think this through. We're, <laughs> we're going to talk about church attendance on a day when a lot of people tend to not go to church, so they're not going to hear it, so that's weird. But anyway, is what it is. God knows what he's doing, and we'll just trust that this was his plan. So with that in mind, let's just talk about this for a minute. Why are you here today? Like, for real, you're like, well, football doesn't start till next week. Okay, well, other than that... Like, why, why are you here today? <laughs> why are you here today? Why do people go to church? There's actually been a brand new, and it was a big survey that this organization put out, um, just talking to people about church attendance, why they go to church, and why they don't go to church. And there's been a lot of, of uh, uh, communication and questions and talking about this, even among pastoral and church leadership circles. Um, but here's some of the reasons. Here's the top 10 reasons why people go to church, all right? Number one, to be closer to God. That's good. Number two, so my kids have a moral foundation. Number three, to be a better person. Number four, for comfort in hard times. Number five, I find the sermons valuable. Thanks, mom. Uh, number six, to be part of a community. Number seven, because of family tradition. Our family's just always done it. Number eight, out of religious obligation. My religion says I have to, so that's why I come. Number nine, to meet people. And number 10, to please my spouse or family or etc. Much of my younger childhood days, amen? So that's why people go to church. Why don't people go to church? Like, what are the main reasons that people who don't go to church would say, this is why I don't go to church? And some of it was a little bit surprising to me on some levels. Um, so here, here's the top five reasons right here. Number one, I practice my faith in other ways. I think we've all either heard or even said that ourselves. Like, oh, my church is in the woods, or my church is on the river, or I practice my faith different ways, whether that be true or not. That's the number one reason that people give for not going to church. They practice their faith in other ways. Number two, I don't believe. Now think about that. 
The number two reason that people don't go to church is that they aren't believers. That's, I would think that would be the number one reason that you wouldn't go to church, right? And then look at the others. Number three, I haven't found a church I like. Number four, I don't like the sermons. <laughs> there they are. <laughs> and then number five, I don't feel welcome, which is a sad one. So I was looking at this list and thinking about this, and, and here's what it actually says to me. I think we have a tendency to look at church attendance and be like the people in the church are the Christians and the people that don't go to church are the ones that are the non-believers. But actually statistics don't always bear that out either. A lot of people are those who would at least claim to be adherents of the faith, but for some other reason other than disbelief, they don't go to church. And I think that's kind of interesting. Um, it, it, it's not always helpful for us to always think of an us and them mentality with the rest of the world. And I think even those statistics right there bear it out. There are a lot of people out there that, that sometimes I think if we would just invite them, they would probably just come. And sometimes we're afraid to invite because we think they think we're wackos. We think they don't want to come to church because they're not believers. And so we have to work our way up to that and earn trust. And many of them actually would at least claim to believe or see some sort of value in it, but, but for whatever reason aren't going. And yet we tend to look at them as just unbelievers who don't want to come. I want to push on that, especially with this new church or back to church weekend coming up. Be bold, church. Amen? Like, be bold. Invite people to church. I mean, in a time and age when people are more separated, though we're connected electronically at least, we're more isolated and separated than we've ever been. Man, invite people in to be part of what God's doing here. I think deep down people want that, but that's for another thing. So here's the question. Whatever the reasons are, there are a lot of people who don't go to church. They have all different reasons why, and we may have different reasons, different seasons, uh, sports reasons, vacations, whatever the case may be. But the question today for the Mythbuster series is, does it matter? Specifically, our topic this week is, or the myth, or whatever we're going to look at is, Christians have to go to church. Is that true, church? Do Christians have to go to church? That's a tricky question, isn't it? And you're afraid to answer it right now. <laughs> but you're here, so you're okay, right? But do Christians have to go to church? Well, we have to consider a couple of things. Let's consider this first. What do you mean by Christian? Because I think that's really important to answering that question the right way. What do you mean by Christian? And then second of all, what do you mean by have to? What does that mean by have to go to church? So we're coming back to Hebrews. Don't lose your spot in there. But I want you to go to Ephesians with me for just a moment. This was a text we sort of teased out a little bit last week and then ran out of time to get to. So I was like, oh, we'll use it this week. Ephesians chapter 2 is where we are. And let's consider, what is a Christian? What do you mean by Christian? Look what Ephesians 2 says. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air and the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, amen? But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him. 
and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in him. Amen? That's a beautiful passage right there, ain't it? Amen? I was watching some old Southern preachers all week. It's actually a parody account online, and it's kind of funny, but it got me all preachy. So, amen? That's like a cool text. Amen? Preach! Come on. Come on. Help me. No, just kidding. I can't do that. But, okay, Christians believe this. Christians believe this to be true. So, so think about what we just read. Christians believe that we were dead in sin, imprisoned to the enemy, dead. And Christians believe that, verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy, did something. We were dead, God did something, and God has brought dead people to life. That's what Christians believe. Christians don't believe we make ourselves better. Christians don't believe we figured things out, came to a realization, and got our act together. Christians believe that God acted on behalf of dead people who were imprisoned to sin, and through the work of Jesus Christ, set them free, brought them back to life, and has placed them in the heavenly realm now. Out of, as Colossians puts it, out of the domain of darkness and into his marvelous light, that we have been adopted into the family of God. And specifically, and he says it twice here in this text in Ephesians, it is not because of our works. Twice he says it. And one time he even says, lest you get cocky and boast. Listen, this is a work of God. So Christians are Christians because we believe that God has acted on our behalf. In other words, this, and this can be a scary thing to think about sometimes, but it's this. Our works do not contribute to our salvation at all. At all. Christians are people who have by grace been saved into a believing faith and repented of our sins. We are believing in the work of Jesus Christ and what he has done for us. We become a Christian by our genuine response and faith and repentance to God's provision. Our works or our actions, the things we do, do not contribute to our salvation in any way. Therefore, it would stand to reason that our works and our actions then do not disqualify us or cause us to lose that sort of role. It's not the kind of reality where God says, I'm going to save you by your works, but you're going to be preserved. I'm going to, excuse me, I'm going to save you by my work in Jesus Christ, but you're going to be preserved now moving forward by yours. That's not what it is. Our works do not contribute to our salvation, but... Our works do confirm our salvation. Our works absolutely confirm our salvation. There are things that if you are saved, if you do believe in God, if you do believe in the gospel, if you do believe in what Jesus has done, if you have encountered the true living God, there are things that will happen in your life that will confirm the reality of that saving moment. It does not, again, it does not contribute to your salvation, but it confirms it. Does that make sense? So the Bible has several different things, like love for God, for example. I mean, just 
knowing the gospel and understanding who we were and what Jesus did, not just that he saved us, but even how, the sacrifice, the pain, the isolation, the torture, the rejection, the death that Jesus experienced on our behalf, he being perfect, we being dead in sins, how can you not have incredible growing love for God as you begin to realize what he has done on your behalf? So I think people who are Christians, you're going to have an increasing just love for God. Not just an intellectual, okay, I agree, but a desire and love for the one who saved you because he first loved us. Amen? That's a contribute, or not a contributing to salvation. It is confirming. It's, it's an, an element of your salvation. Number two would maybe be an increasing desire for holiness. For example, 1 John 2, 3 says this, and by this we know that we have come from, that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Hear that again. John says this, 1 John 2, 3, by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Now, I, we want to be careful here, right? Confirming actions are not perfect. Uh, our, our salvation is not confirmed by our perfect upholding of the commandments of God. Amen? But there should be an increasing desire for holiness. That The more we know about God, the more we know what God has done for us, there should be a desire to want to honor Him out of worship, out of response to what He has done. And, and John says it straight. One of the things that will prove to us that we have come to know God, one of the things that will confirm the reality and the genuineness of your salvation is an increasing desire for holiness. Now again, confirming actions are not perfect but a lack of them should be worrisome. So for, for an example, hear me on this again. We are saved by Jesus Christ alone, amen? But salvation in Christ produces, it should naturally produce a changed heart. He says he will write his will upon our hearts, that he takes this stone of flesh out and he puts this, or excuse me, heart of stone out and puts a heart of flesh in, that his spirit dwells in us and that should change things in a person. Not perfectly, but it happens. And Romans talks about this. In Romans 8, 13, it says, For if you live according to the flesh, that you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Romans 2, 6 says, He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. And Galatians 6 says this, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, he will reap. For the one who sows to his flesh will reap to the flesh corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. He's saying, listen, we can look at the things that we're doing in our life, and it's going to confirm the reality of where our hearts are, and those become really good measuring sticks towards where we're headed. Does that make sense, church? So again, only Jesus saves. Our works don't contribute to our salvation, but they confirm the reality of our salvation. They, they prove a new heart. Does that make sense? But again, they're not perfect. It's the absence of so that would be difficult. So I'll give you an example. Wearing a football helmet does not make you a football player. However, football players do tend to wear football helmets, at least from time to time, correct? So if I'm talking to someone and they say, I'm a football player, I'm like, awesome, I don't see your helmet. Oh, I just, I never wear helmets. I'm going to have questions. I'm going to wonder. I'm going to go, wait a minute, wait a minute. You're a football player and you don't wear a helmet. You're either the dumbest football player in the world 
or you don't understand football, or, or you're not actually playing football. Like, I'm going to have questions about that. Does that make sense? And so these confirming things, the works in our life, these confirming actions, if there is an absence of them, a, a, uh, no desires towards them, those are things that we should pause and go, well, the Bible seems to say that those of genuine faith would have these sort of things, and I don't have that. Is there something wrong? Does that make sense, church? And going to church is one of them. Going to church is one of them. 1 John three fourteen says this. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers, and whoever does not love abides in death. One of the confirming things that will work out of the heart of someone who has been genuinely saved and is being transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ is going to be a love for God's people. You've been adopted into a family. And no family wants to be known by its lack of love for one another. So when you've been adopted into the family of God, there should be some element of love for the brethren that exists. Some desire to be around people that are in your family. The brethren, there's a new camaraderie, a new fellowship, a new community, and your heart should grow towards that to some degree. Now, let me give a disclaimer really quickly, because there may be people here right now, and we all know people out there who have had some really difficult experiences in church. Everything from uh, betrayals or uh, wounded by authority structures or even, sadly, abuses and things like that that you see in the news and all this kind of stuff, we know that those things can exist. And pain is real. Amen, church? Like, things hurt, right? And so I do understand that we can be in seasons of our life, and maybe you're in one right now where you're like, yeah, well, it's hard for me to love the brethren right now because the brethren wounded me and I don't trust them right now and I'm dealing with this and all that. And, and I just want to say that I understand that. We want to create a space for you to be able to work through some of that kind of stuff, but we want to challenge you to push through it and put your faith in God's word and understand that God is calling you, sadly, to a broken group of people who have all been saved by the grace of God, not because we're such great people. And the church is going to wound people from time to time because the church is not an organization. The church is people that are in the body of Christ who are still, by grace, trying to do better. Some of us, better, excuse me, better than others at different times. Like, those kinds of things happen. And I don't want to, like, mock or belittle your pain, but I want to push on you to say, work through that. Because God's Word doesn't give us the room to say, find and forget them. God's Word actually says one of the confirming actions or works of a heart that has been changed by the grace of God is a love for the brethren, for one another. And in the text that we read just a minute ago that we'll read again, we see the text in Hebrews saying, hey, don't forsake the gathering together as is the habit of some. Saying, hey, don't, don't do this. So I don't think, again, it is not something that you have to do to be a Christian. But I think there should be a growing love for people within the church moving forward. And, and I, I mean, I just look at it this way. I was thinking of it like this. If someone came to me and said, Jeff, we love you. We hate your kids, but we love you. Your kids are a nightmare. We love you. Just keep your kids away from me. I don't know that fellowship's going to work out real well in that. I mean, I, I don't think that that's a love I'm going to value. Does that make sense? If you're saying to me, hey, I love you, but I don't love your kids, I'm going to go, no, you don't understand. Like, my kids are part of me. Like, this is my family. 
And, and I, I don't know how we have fellowship in that same way. If you're going to have a hatred for my children when I'm adopting you into the family, that's going to be weird. And so this is part of what God calls us to do. So whatever pain you've had, whatever experiences you've had, hypocrisy, I'll just make it easy for you right now. If you haven't experienced any sort of hypocrisy at Heritage, it's common. We are all hypocrites because we all fall. And we all at times will do things that are contrary to the message that the church overall proclaims we're going to fall. The thing that's different is that we're relying on the grace of God to sustain us and to catch us when we fall. And we're relying on the grace and power of God to get us to the end. And we, if we're approaching the church and Christianity rightly, we are standing on God's grace and God's action, not our actions and our works. Amen? Which also means we shouldn't put that on you. It shouldn't be, I'm standing on God's grace, but I'm going to judge you by your works all the time. And so my acceptance of you will be dependent upon your performance. It's funny how that changes when you're the one that needs grace, right? So the church is a broken group of people. That stuff's going to happen. I've talked about this way too long, but I know that that's real. And a lot of people have that. And we should be gracious to people with pain, but we should still be calling them in. Amen? Because it's God's will. This is God's family. So what do we do with church attendance? How do we handle this? If this is what we're talking about, do Christians have to go to church? No. Should they want to go to church? Yes. How do we handle this? I'll tell you how it's been handled almost my entire life when I've heard sermons about church attendance. It's like this. Son, listen. What are, what's more important to you? Let me get this right. Let me get this right, Jeff. You'll stay out till all hours of the night to go to a ball game or a concert. You'll stand in line for concert tickets. You'll do all these kind of things, but you can't go to church on Sunday? Boy, I will whoop you. That's how it started. But, but a lot of even the pulpit handling of that, and even, I, I don't even want to put this on other preachers necessarily. Let's say it this way. My own reading of Scripture, because of my own tendencies towards legalistic backgrounds, will do the exact same thing. And what it does is church attendance becomes one of those things that we put on the list that we have to do. Right? And we got to check them. It's like, oh, you, you came on Labor Day weekend. Not by works, by faith, Labor Day weekend. That's an interesting dynamic we could have tackled, but we're not. But check, you did the list, so now you can go about the rest of your Labor Day weekend feeling really good about what you did. That's what I would do. That was my approach to it. And when I wasn't in fellowship, if I didn't go to church, it was usually guilt-based. Guilt it was, this is what you have to do, and it was beating over the head, like, what are you talking about? How can you love God if you're doing this? Like, that sort of handling of, you better get in church. And so my attendance at church became one of the things I felt I had to do in order to prove to everyone else who sees me there or not there that I'm a Christian. Is that what God's Word does, though? Is that the right way that the Scriptures actually handle it? I don't think so. So we read together Hebrews chapter 10. We were reading out of Hebrews chapter 10, this is, which contains really the, the, probably the most common use of this particular text. Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and to good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some. So I went this week down into some old Southern Baptist preaching. Now, I love old Southern Baptist preaching. God has used it mightily in my, wife, in, in my life. Excuse me, in my wife. My wife has been, oh, no. Sorry. Um, <laughs> pay for that later. Edit. Um, I, I love, my, my grandfather was an old Southern Baptist preacher. So I, like, 
much of my foundation, my faith is due to that. But still, I wanted to go back and I didn't want to be like, man, I feel like this is what I used to get taught. And, and then turns out it's just true, which it happens a lot of times. We'll, we'll put blame on the church for things that actually wasn't really happening. It's kind of our own sin and rebelliousness. So I wanted to make sure that I went back to some old, old, old Southern Baptist teaching. And that's what I saw more often than grace-based, gospel-centered teaching. I, I saw over and over and over, this is what you have to do, and it was slamming everyone who doesn't. It was guilting families because their kids play soccer. It was guilting families because they like football. It was shame-based, how can you do all of this when Jesus died for you? Get your act together and get your butt in church. They wouldn't say that in a Southern Baptist church, I'm sorry. Uh, get your backside in church is what I should say. My mom's on a plane coming here right now. I'm sorry. <clears throat> so what, is the, what does the text actually say? Well, I believe that we want to make sure that we understand these sort of passages within the context of the text that's written. And I think when I zoom out of this particular text, which is used often to guilt people into being in church, I see something really, really different. So let's read it together. Let's start at the beginning of chapter 10, for example, in Hebrews. Verse 1, it says this, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Think about that for a starter just on this topic alone. He's like, hey, the law and the stuff that you follow, even the church activity can never save you on its own. That's the context of the passage. That's where it starts. He goes on to say, otherwise they would not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Consequently, when Christ came to the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. And then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. And when he said above, You neither have desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Let me tell you what all that means. That's Ephesians 2. What it means is this. The priests at that time were constantly going to the temple, constantly offering sin sacrifices over and over and over. The blood of these animals being spilled as an avenue by which they could cleanse themselves of sins and reestablish communion with God. But it was never perfect. It was never working. He's saying, look, if that really worked then it would have erased sin completely. People wouldn't keep then sinning, but yet it's not happening. There's this thing that happens. It's, it's almost like a reminder of our sin because we're constantly having to do this work over and over and over and over. And then he says, and then Jesus came and said, I have come and prepared my body on your behalf. I will do the work. And instead of the blood of animals or goats or bulls, Jesus poured out his perfect sinless blood on our behalf and he became the once and for all sacrifice for our sin. 
And all the sacrifices, all the offerings, all the tithe checks you write, all the church attendance things, all the things that you do according to the law could never save you. Just like what we said just a minute ago, our works do not contribute to our salvation. They are wholly insufficient to make up for the depth and depravity of our broken, sinful hearts. We need not works, we need a Savior. And so Jesus came. And he became that sacrifice for us, the one who was worthy of it all. He dies and pours his blood out for us once and for all. He has saved us. And it goes on, verse 11. Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sin. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin, he sat down at the right hand of God. That's like a Hebrew mic drop. It's him saying, it's done. I think I'll have a seat. Waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he is perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us after saying, this is the covenant I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts. I will write them on their minds. And then he adds, and I will remember their sin and their lawless deeds. This should totally get an amen. Let me back up again. I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. So there's the context. The context is, hey Israel, you have been working so hard for so long, and it's really getting you nowhere. Your priests are going on your behalf. You're not even worthy yourself to approach God. You've got priests having to go do it for you, and they are constantly offering sacrifices over and over and over, and you are trusting in this religious activity and these works to actually cleanse you and save you and bring you back to God. And it is a tireless action that just keeps going and keeps going and keeps going. But praise God, there is rest for you because Jesus came. And Jesus paid the the price. Jesus offered the sacrifice. And while your priests are still working so hard over and over and over, Jesus has offered his blood and he has sat down and now he's waiting for a time when those enemies will be his footstool. He is coming again, praise God. All of this is over. You can trust in him. And in him, there is not just rest, there is forgiveness. He doesn't even remember your sins anymore. You are constantly reminded of your sin. And he says, nah, I took care of it. I don't even remember them anymore. That's amazing. That's what Ephesians 2 did. It provided salvation for us. It it ended the work. It ended the guilt. It ended the shame. So to then come down and take texts that say, hey, so come back into fellowship, but to use it in a religious way that piles guilt and piles shame back on top of the text is to completely divorce those verses from the context of its passage. The passage is to free us from guilt and shame, not add one more thing on the list of what we have to do. Do Christians have to go to church? No. But why wouldn't you? Like, why wouldn't you? That's what he's saying. Because then he says, therefore, in light of that, verse 19, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, Let us draw near 
with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession. He's saying, understand what Jesus did for you in that sacrifice, and why wouldn't you come in? Like my, my friend Dave Enright here, he's one of the elders here, he and I went to a concert not long ago. It's a band from like early 2000s that we always really liked, and they were here at Brit. And so he and I bought tickets, and we went to go see them in concert at Brit about a month ago. And we had reserve seats because we're too old to sit on the lawn now. So we got reserve seats, but they weren't like good reserve seats. They were like sort of in the back reserve seats, but reserve seats nonetheless. And so as we're sitting there, a friend of mine comes walking up the aisle, and it turns out he now works for Brit. He helps manage the whole Brit thing. And I'm talking with him and I'm joking like, well, now that you work here, you should get us up here in the front then. Ha, 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 ha. He comes back five minutes later with four all-access passes. Like, we could go backstage. We could go, he was like, technically you could go on the stage, but please don't. <laughs> like, all-access passes, we can go anywhere. So there were only two of us. Next to us is a couple that's there together. And they're dancing and having a good old time and all this. We only have these two. And I'm like, hey, you guys, look, our friend just gave us these. And we just offer them these free passes that they can go now. Instead of staying back here, you can go right down into the very, very front. And they're like, oh, okay, cool. So Dave and I are like, so you want to go down there? Yeah, let's go. So we ended up down there. We're like one person away from the stage, like fanboys or something. It was weird, but still it was fun. And the other two, the couple that we gave the passes to, never used them. Stayed all the way in the back. Now, I know not everybody wants to be on front. I know that's all that difference. But I kept thinking, like, you have access to anything, and you're staying away. Why would you do that? It's way more fun down here. I would say the same thing about church. If you understand the reality of what Jesus has accomplished for us on our behalf, he has made it possible for the family to come together in the presence of the greatest dad in history. I don't, know any, I don't know why anyone would want to avoid that. I mean, do you have to be at church to be in the presence of God? No. God is with us everywhere we go. But he is absolutely in the gatherings together. And this is a special place and a special time when we gather together with the body of Christ. Now, I know some people do that in other places that aren't formally church. I understand that that happens. It most often, though, doesn't. And it always happens right here. Like, that's what he's offered to us. Not a place where we come in and go, well, I have to do this so I can check off the list or God's going to be really mad at me this week. But a place that we get to come in and go, I can't believe that someone like me gets to be adopted into the family of God. The creator of the universe picked me. And I want to stay at home? Uh Uh-uh. I want to be around the rest of the family. I want to celebrate with the rest of the family. I want to talk about all this stuff. I want to learn more about this. Sometimes I want to be reminded of this because I need to be. Why wouldn't I want to come to church? What's better than that? So he says, and let us consider how to stir one another up to love and to good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day go near. So do Christians have to go to church? Honestly, no. Christians don't have to go to church, but you should want to. So I'm really quickly, don't freak out when I tell you there's 10 of these. We're going to do this like super fast. Just top of my head, honestly, in writing this, what are 10 reasons you should want to go to church? What are 10 benefits why you should go to church? Number one, 
It is good to be committed to others and to have others committed to you. That is a good and valuable thing. Like we live in a day and age where we, we have friends, right, social media friends and all that kind of stuff, but even those we don't really value because we'll follow and unfollow people based on who knows what they post or whatever argument we had. Our relationships are held together mostly by a string anymore these days, but to be in a place where we are committed to one another and that you have other people committed to you, that will anchor you to the people and the kingdom of God. It is a blessing where you can love one another, you can grow together, you can disciple and be discipled. I mean, where else will you find that in the world out there, a group of people that will commit to you like that? Where does that exist? Number two, it is good to be under the care and shepherding of others. The elders, the leaders of the church, people in the church community that, that maybe are discipling you, that you've come under, that is good that we have people pouring into us in that way. It is good that people pray for us and teach us and study and share with us. That is a valuable thing that you can't find in other venues. Number three, it is good to be part of a body where you can regularly serve others, to have a place where your gifts are not just welcome but needed, where you can exercise and practice the things that God has gifted you in in a way that brings joy because you get to use that to serve someone else within the family of God. That is a good thing. John 1, 3.16 says, or 1 John 3.16 says, By this we know love. He laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay our lives down for the brothers as well. Number four, it is good to have accountability that helps you to pursue holiness. Why? Because holiness is hard. Fighting temptation is hard. Following Jesus in the world that we live in is hard. It is good to have help for that. Amen? No, nobody. Just John. You and me, man. You're the one that voted you like the sermons. I thank you. Number five, it is good to worship God regularly. That is a good thing. Because listen, church, we will worship. We will worship something. Last night, in a stadium in Texas, and in households around televisions all over Oregon, people gathered together to worship what? Ducks. And how did that go? Yeah, got let down a little bit, huh? Hey, I'm a Bronco fan. It's been most of our experience. Like, I get it. We will worship something, and sometimes we will worship the dumbest things in the world. It is good to have a disciplined practice in our life where we intentionally come together for the purpose of worshiping God and remembering that he alone is worthy of our worship, and he alone is the one who we can worship and know that he will never, ever, ever let us down like that cornerback did last night. Amen? <laughs> but it's true. We will worship something. Uh, number six, it is good to be reminded of God's goodness in difficult seasons because they come for us all. And it is good to be in a place where we are gathered together by pe with people that have been through seasons like that, studying the word in such a way that we are reminded that this isn't the end, that Jesus is putting everything back together, that he's coming back for us, that even God can have purposes through the difficulties we walk in. It is good and valuable to find that. Amen? Uh, Number seven, it is good to be regularly taught the word of God. This is, these are words of life, the lamp unto our feet. That is a valuable thing, to come together and study the word of God regularly, a practice that we desperately need because everybody else in the world is preaching something nowadays. Everybody's a preacher one way or another. 
social media, Twitter, all that kind of stuff. There's messages being poured into you all the time. We need to regularly be studying the Word of God with God's people. Amen? Number eight, it is good to be reminded of the gospel and of his return. Like, where else do you go that you get reminded that you have such unconditional acceptance and love? Then church, what else provides that? Because every avenue I know of in life where you find love or you find that sort of acceptance, it's always dependent on something. Performance, what you bring to the table, how good you've been, how much you love them. We get to come and be reminded of the gospel of Jesus Christ that he loves you totally, unconditionally. He loves you. What a gift that is. What a gift that is. Number nine, oh, and that he's coming back, by the way. Just in case you forgot, Jesus is coming back. Like, this is not the difficulties, the pains, the struggles, the guilt, the sin, all that stuff. It has an end date. It has an expiration date. Jesus is coming back. Don't forget that. Amen, church? We should say that even more. He's coming back, and maybe soon. Maybe, I cannot write this exact second, but maybe really, really soon. That's what we hope. That's what we hope. Amen? Number nine, it is good to be to regularly represent the gospel to the world around us like our gathering here models something that the rest of the world needs and and if i can push a little bit even on the bad experiences you might have with church or arguments we have with other christians because that's one of the things that always breaks my heart the most is that whether it be a decision or an argument or something that we would end fellowship within churches we do it way too easily Instead, we need to be modeling the grace and forgiveness that saved us with one another so that the rest of the world sees that happening here and knows that we're different. Amen? It is good to be in a place where we are representing the gospel to the world around us in that way. And then number 10, it is good to be stirred up to good works. Like, we gather so we can scatter. Like, our, our, the word we use here is this is a huddle. We gather together to get into the playbook. I'm going to get sports analogy here, but it's true. We get into the playbook. We, we get a breath of fresh air. We, we drink water, whatever the case may be. We listen to the coach. We all get on the same page. We know what the game plan is. We know what the mission is. We know what the goal is. We know where we've been weak. We know where we've been strong. We know what we need to deal with. And then we go ready, break, and we scatter, and we go do the things that God's calling us to do in the world and in the community around us, as well as within the church for one another. And it's good to gather together and be reminded of what those things are. Amen? That's a good thing. And then I got, I got a bonus one for you. It's just plain good for you. If you're like uber practical, let me read you this quote from the New York Times. One of the most striking scientific discoveries about religion in recent years is that going to church weekly is good for you. Religious attendance appears to boost the immune immune system and decrease blood pressure it may add as many as three years to your life the reason for this is not entirely clear (laughs) i have some ideas because when the stresses of the world weigh us down we come here and we lift our hands in worship i've done this with you guys before i know it's cheesy but it's a good analogy if you put your hand on your shoulder it's kind of wide you can carry a lot of stuff there. But when you lift your hands in worship, you ever notice the shoulder gets really, really small right then? And that's what happens when we come together. When we come and worship, right now we're going to be coming and doing communion here in just one second. 
and you get to come to the table and whatever worries you're carrying, whatever stresses you're carrying, whatever illnesses you're carrying, whatever difficulties you're carrying, you come here and you see the body of Christ represented in the bread and the blood of Christ represented in the cup and you remember that the perfect one, Jesus Christ himself, has solved the biggest problem you will ever have. How can you not trust him with everything else? That'll lower some blood pressure, I think, when we learn to cast our cares and our anxieties and give those things over to the Lord and trust that he has our future secure and that, oh yeah, he's coming again. Amen? He's coming again. So, Labor Day crowd who didn't go camping or whatever the case may be, and you guys are probably actually, this is Oregon, you probably took your vacations in June thinking it was going to be on fire the rest of the summer, but whatever the case may be, hey, I'm, I'm happy that you guys are here. If you're visiting, I am happy that you are here. My challenge, and not a guilt-based challenge to you, be regularly gathered with the people of God. It is a good thing to do. Amen? Make that a priority. Worship of God and the gathering together. Do not neglect the gathering together of the saints, as is the habit of some. But let's come together and stir one another and consider how we can accomplish these good things that God has prepared for us by His grace. Amen, church? At this time, the guys are going to come back up, and they're going to lead us in worship. We're going to have about two, three songs, and and we're going to open up the tables for communion. This is a chance for us to come and respond to God in worship for understanding, and we respond in multiple ways. We respond in giving. The brothers are going to come forward. The doorkeepers will come, and they're going to accept this morning's tithes and offerings. If you would feel compelled to give towards this mission of God, we would love to have your partnership in that, to be able to plant churches, to be able to minister to the needy, whatever the case may be. So we respond in worship by giving. We respond in worship by singing. As we, we lift our voices, one of the things that the Bible calls us as Christians to do when we come together is to sing to one another hymns and spiritual songs. They're reminders of who God is. They're reminders of what God has done and they're declarations. They're not just, and they, they shouldn't be anyway, habitual mind-numbing songs. These are declarations of the goodness of God preaching to ourselves as we sing, amen? And we come to the table. And we remember the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross that made it possible that we could be brothers and sisters with one another. After we sing, when we, when we dismiss, I want to encourage you to take it even to that next step. Man, meet people. Pray with people. If you're new here, tap someone on the shoulder. Say, I'm new. If you're regular here and you see someone you think's new, tap them on the shoulder and say hi. But like, let's fellowship together and be the welcoming, hospitable body of Christ that loves and serves one another and creates that sort of community under the headship of Jesus Christ. That's what we're here to do this morning. Amen, church? So will you worship, sing, give, and commune with us? Father, we commit this time to you. I pray, God, you would just be honored by our worship, that you would comfort hearts and speak to your people as we, as we uh, come to this table, as we sing. I pray, God, for those who are in this place that have never put their faith in you, may they do so, Lord. May they, may they put their trust in you and your finished work and join this community of faith. And I pray, God, that you would just be honored as we worship you. In Jesus' name. At this time, the communion table is open. You can come forward. And after you've received communion, stand with us and let's sing the praises of Jesus Christ. My